Welcome to the PaxX Podcast. This is episode 10 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. How are you? It's nice to talk to you again. Likewise. I'm doing all right here, Max. We uh, have had some busy days here, uh, some really unfortunate news, obviously, with respect to this uh, Malaysia Airlines 777. Ah, yes. Um, and we, uh, you know, for our listeners, we've decided to dedicate uh, this entire podcast to discussing it and and looking at uh, some various different issues. Um, before uh, we get started, I'd like to thank Lumexis for sponsoring this week's podcast. Lumexis is widely known for providing its fiber optics-based IFE system on Fly Dubai 737s. It also has a new second screen wireless solution that lets passengers use one or more of their own PEDs simultaneously to wirelessly access moving maps, food selection, catalog purchase, and on and on. So we'd like to thank Lumexis. Uh, now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Jason Rabinowitz. He's known as Airline Flyer on social media. He's a well-known aviation geek who researches airlines, airplanes, and travel. He's written a number of articles for a number of different publications, and he works as one of Route Happy's data guys, which means he collects data about the passenger experience. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me, Mary, uh, Max. I wish we were under better circumstances today, yeah. but uh, we have a lot, of talk, a lot to talk about today, I think. Yeah, we sure do, and this is an interesting one. You know, passenger safety is, I think, certainly the most important part of the passenger experience, and that's why we're dedicating today's episode to discussing MH370, as Mary mentioned. Now, Jason, you've been tracking developments since Malaysia Airlines announced that your traffic control had lost contact with the 777. What do we know so far? I'm afraid right now we still don't know much more than we did approaching two days ago as we're recording this. Uh, approximately two days ago, a Malaysian 777 flying over the Gulf of Thailand just kind of disappeared. Uh, the radar tracks just ended. ADSB data trail just ended. It was about six hours before the airline came out publicly that they had lost contact with their aircraft. And since then, multiple jurisdictions have been searching for the aircraft, but nothing's really shown up. It's very mysterious right now. There have been a lot of rumors over the course of the last 48 hours that they found oil slicks or they found debris or the aircraft landed here or there, but really substantially we don't know much more than we knew two days ago. And this is just a very mysterious situation right now. It's very concerning. Of course, uh, anytime there is, uh, you know, a crash or an accident, uh, there's a ton of speculation always uh, before the facts come out. But this is, is such an unusual event. It's really unprecedented, isn't it, Max? For, for, or, 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 or is there precedent here? It does feel unprecedented, and usually there's at least some information which fuels the speculation. As we've talked about uh, before, the media, of course, is under always a lot of pressure to bring us information quickly, and uh, sometimes that leads to some pretty crazy speculation or some reports that don't have strong basis in fact being reported as if it, it were fact. But in this case, yeah, because so little has known, there's there's not too much speculation that's taking place. Of course, probably the, the greatest speculation at this point concerns the two passengers who apparently were flying with stolen passports. 
Right, right. I saw that. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, Rupa Haria with Aviation Week, she just mentioned uh, today on social media, she reminded people that it's not uncommon, for example, for drug mules to be flying with stolen passports. So I know there's a lot of assumptions that it, this could be terrorism, but that there also could be a, a simple explanation for those two passports as well. It's very, very curious. Jason, um, you know, I know that uh, we're, we've all been trying to track what's what's going on. I think one of the real curious things is uh, no distress signal, no ELT. What, you know, what's the deal there, uh, in your opinion? Right. Uh, well, when we lost contact with the airplane, there was no distress call. We don't have any indication that the aircraft turned around or made any sudden movements. There was no uh, transponder code that you might see on sites like Flight, Flight Radar 24 all the time, the uh, 7700 alerts. There's no emergency locator transmitter beacon of any sort. It's just all very shocking at this point. Where the aircraft went down, numerous people said the water isn't very deep, so any wreckage of the aircraft shouldn't be that difficult to locate, like it was with uh, Air France 447 in the middle of the ocean. It, it just leads to that much more speculation and that much more mystery of what happened to this aircraft. Why do we know absolutely nothing right now? It, it's It's very strange. Yeah, the fact that it that there isn't any indication, any transmissions, any communications, it, it leads many folks to suggest that it perhaps was some kind of a sudden event, some kind of a catastrophic event that uh, didn't uh, allow for any kind of communications like that. But again, it's it's speculation at this point. We we really don't know. Yeah, yeah, we 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 try to be careful in this regard. Uh, obviously, a lot of people wondering if there was a bomb on board or if there was a, some sort of hijacking or this, uh, you know, intended event. Um, but again, we just don't know. Um, obviously, it should be mentioned there uh, were 239 people on board that aircraft. Obviously, this is hugely devastating uh, for all of their friends and family waiting uh, uh, and hoping uh, to get any information possible as to what's going on. It must be absolutely devastating for them to not have a, a, you know any any knowledge as to, to where their loved ones are i mean that that's it's really heartbreaking really this really just isn't something you you think is even a possibility in 2014 with how advanced aviation is right now the thought that an aircraft could just vanish is almost i can't comprehend it really yeah well, Jason, that's a good a good point, a good question, is how can an aircraft just disappear? I mean, we know that the flight data recorders and the cockpit recorder is uh, capturing tons of data, just an amazing volume of data about what's going on in the airplane. And you wonder, well, why why do we find ourselves in this kind of a situation where we don't have access to that data? This is some of the same issues that were that were raised after the Air France 447 accident. And, and Mary, you've been following this from a connectivity standpoint. What are you finding? Yeah, I have actually, and um, you know, we've been we've been obviously we we write a lot about connectivity for passengers uh, on on the network, but we have also been uh, looking very very closely at using connectivity uh, for operational benefits uh, and also for uh, the potential to stream black box data. So I've been having various different conversations with stakeholders over the last several months. I had an opportunity, in fact, to 
interview uh, the director of the BEA who led the investigation into Air France 447. I talked to him at Flight Safety Foundation's uh, Aviation Summit uh, late last year. And um, he said that the reason why we're not using kind of broadband pipes right now to stream data uh, from the black box is simply a matter of cost, that the industry doesn't want to pay for it and that they felt that it was cost prohibitive. Um, you know, there are others that would argue that that is less and less, that that's what would you'd call a flimsy argument now, uh, because they are finding much more efficient ways and much cheaper ways uh, to, to use these services. Um, it, it seems somewhat inexplicable that we are not, uh, that in 2014, we're, we're not using the technology that is at our disposal to ensure that these types of events uh, don't occur. As somebody mentioned on the site, well, it wouldn't have prevented a catastrophic failure. That's absolutely correct. But we would have been streaming uh, data up and, and until that catastrophic failure. We'd have a much better idea right now where that aircraft is. Jason, I, I know that um, in, in, the, in the hours and days after, after an incident or accident, it, people need to be very, very cautious. Um, what, what are your thoughts when it comes to streaming black box data? I think over time, it's absolutely something the industry is not going to have a choice in the matter of we're, we're going, going to have to do it. The cost of in-flight data has just come down dramatically over the last few years. And this excuse of, oh, we, we'd love to do it, but it's too cost prohibitive. It's just not going to work anymore. When we have new systems like uh, Viasat's Kaband connectivity coming out, there is a huge amount of bandwidth and a huge fat pipe that this black box data could just take a small portion of while everyone in the back of the plane watches Netflix. So it may be a little more difficult for transocean flights, but like, like everything else, the cost of this connection is going to come down and they just will not have a choice at some point. I think that uh, one of the commenters in the network, and maybe this is the uh, reference you're making, uh, Mary, raised the issue of does it only change when we know information and not what information we know. In other words, even with Air France 447, granted, it took a couple of years before the recorders were recovered and the data was uh, was examined, but we got it eventually. And if we transmit all that data or at least some subset of that data real time and capture it, it just changes when we know the data, not what data we know. Do you think that's a valid argument against doing this? You know, it's interesting. So uh, kind of two points to make right now. Um, number one, just just very quickly backing up to, to what Jason was saying. Absolutely, there are higher bandwidth uh, pipes out there. KA is one of them. Obviously, that's a regional solution right now. There is going to be a global KA band solution uh, coming out from Inmarsat. But I think that what's important to also note is that Inmarsat offers something called Swift Broadband. Now, it's not a high bandwidth uh, solution, but what it is, is consistent. And what it is, is now approved for safety services. So there is now a connectivity solution out there that you could dedicate the entire, all of the channels, you could dedicate it all uh, to safety services. And really, you know, and they have been saying for years that with respect to this, they can have now dedicated streaming classes to stream black box data. And what you could do, because that's a, a near global solution, is what you could do is dedicate all of that to streaming and to safety services and to co cockpit comms and then take those big KA and KU 
pipes and use them for the cabin. Now that's one, that's one solution. Another solution that everybody is looking at is also taking, as Jason says, taking that K, big, big KU or KA pipe and splitting it up. But there are security issues that need to be addressed there. They're trying to address them as quickly as possible. The industry is working on this, but there is obviously some concern about taking that pipe and then having, using the same pipe that you have cabin connectivity to stream really essential data and, and making sure that there's some level of separation. So those are the two kind of big considerations from the connectivity standpoint. Now, to answer your question, Max, um, you know, the, the reality is that if you are sending information to the ground, you're absolutely right, and, and there's a catastrophic a catastrophic failure, it will determine really when we know. Okay, that's a very, very fair point. But there's also another school of thought, and there are people working on this right now, um, that in the event of a mechanical issue, now there's very little we can do if an aircraft has been bombed, for example. But in the event of this being a a mechanical issue, um, there's the the sense in the industry that you can start using the pipe for um, to be able to do real-time analysis on the ground. So to be able to assist the pilots, and this is kind of moving us a little bit further down the path where it's not just about what you can stream from the aircraft, it's what you can do with the data that you have at the gr- on the ground, and what are your operations in place on the ground to then be able to assist the pilots and say, okay, we're seeing uh, some errors here, we're seeing some faults here, we're seeing a red flag here, uh, communicate to the pilot, and then be able to perhaps assist Um those are conversations that are also being had. That's also one of the reasons why they're looking at not just pulling data through these pipes, but also being able to push data up. Um, it's all in play. Obviously, there's a lot of companies that uh, it's uh, that don't want to talk about it in detail because a lot of it is proprietary, and of course, there's also concerns that there, there you'll have headlines splashing everywhere of you know you can hack a plane. There's also concerns about that, but. But what I would say to that commenter is that he's not looking at the bigger picture here and what ultimately they would, the, the industry would like to be able to do with these pipes. And remember, with Air France 447, by the, between the time that aircraft went down and then they actually retrieved the black boxes, that was a nearly two-year span. And right. in that time, we had no idea what happened to that aircraft, whether it was mechanical or something else, there were many questions that needed to be answered immediately. And it took two years to find those black boxes. They almost gave up on that search. And had they had that data real time, it wouldn't, it, we would have known immediately what had happened. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and, and it cost, it cost a small fortune to do it. Um, but I think there's also, and, and this is what I, I get concerned about is that, that folks don't put enough value on what knowing means to the, the poor families. I mean, it's essential for these families to understand what have happened to their loved ones. I mean, I, I know, I know that we're, we're in, you know, it's, we're talking about business here and, and money talks and everything else. But as someone said yesterday, what price safety and what price, you know, do you put on, on being able to inform somebody, you know, what has happened to their loved one? Max, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's a sort of human issue that you really can't place a value on, not, really in my opinion um but yeah the the families do want to know as soon as possible as as much information as as they can uh, because they have questions and these are loved ones that they've presumably in this case lost and so it's tough but 
I haven't seen anybody quantify in in dollars and cents what adding this kind of uh, uh, capability would uh, would cost the airlines on a net basis. Uh, I don't know. Has anyone performed that calculation? I can I can tell you right now uh, some of the cost to some of these systems. But again, as we say, that is only half of the. That's only one part of the pie, right? But uh, so, for example, the likes of a Swift broadband system that I discussed earlier, which has been approved for safety services, that would would provide a viable option. You're still looking at anywhere in the realm of three, four, five hundred thousand for the actual hard. Hardware. Then you're looking at recurring costs for the service. That's something everybody needs to understand is this, there's recurring cost. Um, and then, of course, uh, you, again, it's what you do with that information on the ground. It's having, uh, you know, the manpower on the ground and, and, and using the data appropriately. So there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle there. Um, similarly, there's a lot of uh, cost in, in going into ensuring that, for example, KU or KA would be able to be used. Um, but I, I, I have to say that KU and KA have not been approved for safety services. Um, you know, you have to meet a number of benchmarks uh, to be able to get that claim and, and, and consistency of service and global uh, near global service, which is what Imarsat has, except except for the polls, um, there are certain benchmarks that you have to have uh, to be able to to meet. Um, so there is expense involved, but I would like to point out that airlines are already soaking up a ton of expense to subsidize in-flight connectivity for passengers. So we're offering in-flight connectivity, and they're taking a hit. Now, granted, ultimately, cost does trickle down to passengers, but the airlines are taking a hit both in hardware and in recurrent service charges for in-flight connectivity for passengers. It seems a bit crazy to me that we're not going to talk about taking a financial hit then for something like this, which arguably is far more important. You know, I've been following the Twitter stream on this, uh, following hashtag MH370, and it's been kind of interesting. I mean, stepping back from the, the tragedy of this, certainly, but in the absence of a lot of information, a lot of the Twitter stream is talking about is sympathy for the passengers and for the, the families, uh, you know, praying for for them, and that's been kind of interesting. And there's also been the usual sort of repetition of the published uh, news uh, items um, in the in the mainstream media, and then a, a, a few kind of odd things that don't seem to have any basis in fact. But I find it fascinating that you know in this day and age when we have this kind of instant communication capability, that when it focuses in on an accident like this, an aviation accident, I mean there, there's implications of that. And Jason, I know that uh, your root happy colleague John Walton uh, he broke some of the news early on of the Ethiopian Airlines ET seven hundred two hijacking. He did that on Twitter, and he's I guess not even really a journalist, but aviation geeks now are are getting involved in in this kind of uh, communication, maybe in competition with the mainstream media. What do you think about that? I, I think it's definitely interesting era that we're coming into right now. Even before John Walton had officially broken the story with, with hard news, six hours before that, just regular people, regular av geeks on Twitter had noticed on Flight Radar 24 that this Ethiopian aircraft was squawking 7500, which is the hijack code. And immediately after that, it disappeared off radar, so they really couldn't do anything more with that. 
But we're learning information before mainstream media, hours and hours and hours before they have any clue what's going on, really. It's, it's a very interesting time we're living in where we break the news and then CNN or MSNBC re-break the news after we've already figured out what's potentially happening. It's very strange times we're living in. So, Jason, given that, does that mean are there implications for the airlines, in this case Malaysia, when an accident like this occurs? Absolutely. Twitter can be a dangerous place at times in the way that false information can just run wild at times. There were many, many rumors on Twitter and the rest of social media after this accident just partially due to the absolute lack of any real information. There were rumors such as the the aircraft landed in some mysterious airport in China, or we found oil slicks that we know were from the aircraft, or this and that. And it, people's imaginations can just get go, run wild on Twitter, and people retweet it and disseminate this information as fact. And unfortunately, sometimes mainstream media does pick up these rumors even though they're completely unconfirmed, untrue, and a lot of people just don't do any of the research, and whatever they see on Twitter, they take for fact, which is a scary thing. It is. Uh, it, it is interesting to see it all play out, Jason. You're absolutely right. We're this is we're in a whole new world now, um, and uh, and obviously every uh, every major news outlet uh, needs to be paying attention to what's happening. Um, and they need to get on their game, quite frankly, because as you said yourself, a lot of them are picking up rumor and speculation. And then, of course, they have a massive audience and spreading it around. I know that even just over the last few days, there's been some really cringeworthy moments with networks that shall remain nameless, but just where people have been calling them out on Twitter and saying, you know, you, know, you guys don't even have your facts straight. Um, the reality is that when any of these incidents or accidents occur, um, increasingly, those of us who are covering this industry are following key individuals that we know are going to um, take a very, you know, it, be cautious, um, but also provide the information that is confirmed. Um, of course, Jason is among the, the individuals that are, that are working to do that, and, and, and that's so important. Um, I think that uh, I think that it, it, it's interesting to see that um, that there are certain key people that are kind of emerging as folks that you that you can can go back to time and again and during any situation and know that they're going to be looking at the issue and also uh, and also disseminating the information that it, that is confirmed. I think that that's really essential. Um, and, and we're seeing some of those people kind of rise to the top. But I would also suggest that, you know, one of the interesting things here is that the aviation geek community is increasingly playing an essential role uh, in, in this information um, uh, discovery. And, and that is because they are, are so clued into the industry. Jason, you, for example, uh, you know, you, you regularly uh, are photographing a lot of these aircraft, right? Um, so you're knowing not. these aircraft intimately d down to tail number, uh, down to now increasingly what's on board the aircraft. Um, can you talk a little bit? bit about, you know, the kind of the information that you get that perhaps maybe some of these mainstream media folks aren't even looking at right now. Right. Well, especially using the internet right now, we have a vast of amount of information at our fingertips. Even just on my phone on a bus in San Francisco during this incident, I can access Flight Radar 24, Plane Finder, Flight Aware. I can get vital information about the aircraft, the line number, any prior accidents that it may have been involved in. 
just the amount of information that every person on the planet, as long as they have an internet connection, is able to get is just incredible. But for some reason, it just seems like mainstream media does not utilize this, or they just don't know how to utilize this. For example, uh, Live ATC, which transmits uh, the aviation frequencies from around the world over the internet, this is how John Walton, with the Ethiopian incident, was able to find out in real time was what was going on, simply by listening to air traffic control. And this is something that everybody, everyone on the internet is able to access. What you do with that information is totally up to the individual user. How you interpret it, what you know, what to do with each piece of information becomes very important. But what's out there is just stunning right now. And, of course, this information is also available to the airlines. What role do you think the airlines should play in social media during an accident of this sort? I think a lot was learned after the Asiana incident in San Francisco that Asiana really remained silent on Twitter and really through all channels for several days after the incident. Thankfully, Malaysia seemed to learn from Asiana's mistakes. They were very, after the, I guess you would call it six-hour period where, where nothing happened, they were very forthcoming. They provided a constant base of updates through Twitter they even went as far as altering their uh, Facebook profile pic in memorial of the aircraft. And what I found that they were doing the best was they were actively squashing false rumors on Twitter. So whenever one of these false rumors would pop up, they'd say, this is not confirmed, we have no information. I think they've been doing a very good job of controlling the information and kicking out information that just is completely baseless. And Social media has played a big part in that right now that it just simply hasn't played in the past. Yeah, I, I'm really impressed with Malaysia on, on social media over the last few days. Really a, a, a class act, the way they're, they're, they're handling this, and really a, a heartbreaking request for prayers uh, to the world yesterday, which I found uh, incredibly moving um, and, and, and incredibly sad because one would like to believe that in 2014, uh, you know, we would know so much more at a point like this. Um, I, I think it's important to note that, um, you know, it, it, just taking it full circle, Jason, you know, you talk about the, the tools that you, you use and have access to and that we all do um, to be able to find key information about aircraft and where they're at. Of course, a lot of flyers now and a lot of aviation geeks are on board their aircraft using in-flight connectivity and, and uh, letting the world know exactly where they're at. It's kind of interesting, you know, uh, as more and more aircraft get equipped, even with cabin connectivity, uh, it's the real-time mapping uh, that that a lot of uh, aviation geeks are sharing and uh, one has to wonder if even if you had just onboard connectivity and you had individuals reporting where they're at and what they're doing uh, in flight and, 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 and their positioning, I mean, of course, the great irony that a lot of these aircraft that have connectivity, the passengers sometimes have more information in the back than the guys up front, um, which is something that kind of we've talked briefly about in the past, but it is, it is the great irony here where, you know, you can have... Uh, you know, mapping in the in the back of the plane that the pilots don't even have access to. Do you think that um, there might even just be some kind of very basic benefit there in terms of uh, just even having a connection would even give you an idea of at least, you know, especially in light of the fact that so many passengers now are always reporting where they're at and what they're doing? Right. I don't think there's a flight I take that goes by where I'm not looking at 
either plane finder or flight radar 24 at my exact location, taking the link to that, tweeting it out and saying, Hey, I'm on this flight, follow me. And it's just something I do second nature. Now I just, every time I'm on a flight, I say, this is the flight I'm on, follow my progress. Mm-hmm. And as you've mentioned many times, people love the moving map. Everyone just has their eyes glued to it. They love to know where they are, what they're doing. And, People like to know the situation around them. And, yeah, it, it is kind of strange that passengers have these high-resolution, digital, real-time GPS-based maps in the back of the cabin, while sometimes maybe the pilots up in front, they don't have that information. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a fascinating world, and uh, we'll certainly be looking at it uh, much more closely here in, in the coming weeks. But uh, we're, we're rapidly coming to a close here. I, I'd like to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity uh, on Twitter at, at @RunwayGirl. And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Uh, please join in the conversation. There is obviously now a lot of great conversations going on in that hashtag. Um, I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, Lumexis, and I'd like to thank Jason Rabinowitz for being our guest. Jason, where can listeners find you at? You can find me at, at Airline Flyer on Twitter, Airline Flyer on Facebook. Uh, you can find me working for Route Happy. Um, occasionally, you can find me on the site Archive, uh, Airline Reporter, and uh, just follow me on Twitter. And I'll point you in the right direction. <laughs> All right. Very good. Thank you again, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Well, join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. <laughs>